Hello, everyone, and welcome to the latest episode of the Airways podcast. I'm Vinay Bhaskara, and I'm joined, as always, by my good friend, Rohan Anand. Rohan, how are we doing on Wednesday, October 4th? Well, it's not October 3rd for all the people that uh, listen to our podcast and also celebrate National Mean Girls Day uh, in reference to the movie. <laughs> Vinay, I can see you're rolling your eyes at me as I say that. Uh, so my week's been good overall. I have been dog-sitting my neighbor's dog while he is dealing with a family emergency. And this dog also happens to be a pit lab mix, kind of like my dog, but has four times the amount of energy. So uh, that's been quite quite the adventure for the last few days. And my work life balance is also kind of in the toilet, but still make time to go to the gym and do this podcast. So for all of our listeners out there, this is a very subtle plea to please give us a, a review and a rating on uh, all of the platforms that you can possibly uh, give us a rating on so that we can continue to put this content out there. How about you, Vinay? Wow. What's up? Try, trying to trying to tug at the heartstrings of our listeners. That is, exactly. that is shameless emotional manipulation. Exactly. First of all, I, I thought you were going to say that Wednesday, October 4th is, of course, International Vodka Day um, for, for all those who celebrate. So happy, happy International Vodka Day to, to all those that celebrate. Um, I'm good. Just excited today to chat about United's new orders, to chat about a pretty big shakeup in the European airline industry, um, and to chat about a, let's call it questionable, uh, future expansion plan that was unveiled by China Eastern Airlines this week. So let's get right into it. Um, we're going to get started with United Airlines, um, my favorite, I guess by default, airline here in the United States. And United earlier this week announced a new order for 110 aircraft with delivery starting in 2028. That includes 50 of the Boeing 787-9 Dreamliner and 60 of the Airbus A321neo family aircraft. Uh, they also added purchase options, you know, topping up purchase options for 50 more 787s and 40 new A321s. Um, so this adds on to an order that United placed late last year for 100 787 family aircraft, and I think it was like 120 or so um, A321neo aircraft. They also have a bunch of 737 Maxes on order. In fact, if you add up United's entire order book, it's touching close to 800 um, aircraft on order. So Rohan, what was your reaction to United buying yet more 787s and yet more A321neos? Well, United is a proud Boeing customer. Uh, they don't have any wide body aircraft that fits within the Airbus category. Right now, they have Boeing 767s, Boeing 787s, Boeing 757s that are used on some long haul routes, and then of course the 777. And we don't really know what's going to happen with the 777X program as of yet. And so for United, it definitely makes sense to continue to move forward with the 787 family, particularly as these aircraft can be used to replace older 767s that are in the fleet and even some of the 777s that may have joined the fleet back in the 1990s. Uh, United even in, uh, in, uh, inherited a bunch of 7, 777s from Continental and its merger that also, uh, you know, might be reaching around three decades old at the time that these 787s uh, come in. 
So I definitely think that this makes sense. And of course, it falls in line with the United Next announcement that they had made back in 2022. And I think that the narrow body order for the Airbus A321s uh, will be used, as United says, to replace some of the older 757s on domestic routes, um, as well as some of the previous generation Airbus 320 and Boeing 737 aircraft. Uh, looking at some of the rendering of the United planes in the Airbus A321 uh, livery, it looks pretty sexy. Uh, I think that that is going to be a really nice way for United to try to introduce a unified product across all of its classes. Uh, and as I mentioned, it's just kind of a versatility factor where they'll be allowed to use some of these Airbus aircraft on medium long haul routes, as well as being able to utilize the 787s that are coming through, uh, particularly in the Dash 9 family, because it is such a sweet spot and it can be uh, rotated throughout all of its hubs pretty neatly. What are your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, I, I think in this order from United, you see some of those, some of the broader themes that we're seeing in the aviation world repeated and, um, or, or, you, or at least you, you see those in the orders that United has just placed, right? More 787s, more wide body, um, more efficient wide body aircraft, finally turning over its fleet replacement. But I think the bigger thing that you're seeing is really the continuation of two key themes. Theme number one, is given all of the supply chain challenges and constraints that Boeing and Airbus have seen over the last, let's call it three years since the start of COVID, honestly, in Boeing's case, even longer before that with some of their 737 MAX problems, securing delivery slots, particularly in popular programs like the 787, like the A320neo family, um, that is really, really critical, right? In an ideal world, I think, you know, United might have liked to wait on some of these orders, right? You have to pay a little bit of capital upfront as a deposit, but more importantly, you're signing up for a bunch of future CapEx. But in a world where you don't trust Airbus and Boeing to expand production enough to deliver aircraft when you need them, and in a world where fuel prices continue to be super volatile coming out of the pandemic, given the Russian invasion of Ukraine and some of the other structural factors that have been driving oil prices upwards, you just need to have those aircraft uh, production slots secured, right? And in fact, I might even argue that some of the other things that you've seen happen in the U.S. airline industry that don't make a ton of sense, whether it's the, the JetBlue merger with, with Spirit, are driven by this same factor. And so I think that's that's theme number one that you're seeing play out. And theme number two is that you're continuing to see narrow body gauge move upwards, right? There's a lot of 737 MAXs on order, but no one expects United to be taking a bunch of 737 MAX 7s or even really MAX 8s. It's a lot of MAX 9s and it's a lot of MAX 10s on United's on the, on the Boeing side. And it's a lot of A321neo, A321neo LR, XLR, um, long range aircraft, both for a mix of domestic trunk routes Right, I think they're launching the A321neo on Chicago O'Hare to Fort Lauderdale a little bit later this year. And, of course, that transatlantic mission um, where they're, you know, the A321neo LR and XLR finally seem like they are a replacement for the 757 after 30-something years uh, yeah. of, of that airplane just chugging along. So yeah. I think it's it's kind of more of the same. Like, it's a big order. Obviously, it's, it's one of the biggest aircraft orders announced this year in terms of total value. But it also is, I think, just a continuation of United's existing strategy, right? And it's a continuation of some themes, some broader themes that we're seeing play out in the aviation world.
Now, what about the Airbus A350? Because I'm not, I don't think that either of us have any sort of insight into what's happening with that order. But for many years, United Airlines and American Airlines have kind of suspected that the A350 orders that they were received have been kind of pushed down the line. We know that Delta canceled the 787 orders that Northwest had put in. Northwest was actually going to be one of the launch customers of the 787 had it not merged with Delta or had Delta decided not to get rid of those aircraft. So what's happening with that order book for the Airbus A350-900? Is it possible that those are being converted into the Airbus A321 orders? Yeah, it's, it's a little unclear. Nothing was formally announced, and I don't think it is in either United or Airbus's interest to give us a straight answer. I, my guess is that if that is what you saw happen, at some point, the United orders will be wiped off of Airbus's books very quietly when they do an orders and deliveries updates. Right? No one is issuing a press release to say, hey, we've canceled, uh, you know, at this point, fake order for 45 uh, A350s. And I think there's been some reporting that says that at this point, because United has ordered so many A321s, it looks like they're going to be able to cancel those A350 orders um, without too much of a penalty. And frankly, again, returning back to the theme that I just um, hit on, given that Airbus doesn't have the ability to just ramp up A350 production willy-nilly, at this point, you probably want those production slots back to be able to sell the aircraft to someone who's actually going to take delivery. Um, United seems like they are all in on a 787-oriented fleet, and then with the, maybe the possible exception of that 777-300ER fleet, which is, again, very young in United's fleet, at some point they may need to deviate from that to replace those 777-300ERs. Though, again, you know, if you look out 15, 20 years, by that point, maybe the 787-10 has been you know, improved enough that it can be that viable 777-300ER replacement. So I, I tend to think that those it, those A350s are dead, right? That that order has been dead for a very long time, right? It's, it's been a, a zombie order um, for a very long time. But I think at this point, if you're Airbus, you're honestly not too worried about it because um, you've got plenty of other people to sell the A350 to, right? Air, Air France KLM just bought 50 of them, which we talked about on our last episode. So I don't think Airbus is too worried about it, but I think the A350 is dead. Now... Um, in, I guess, the inversion of the discussion we had last week where I said, hey, if you're KLM, Air France KLM, why don't you just buy the 787-10? That makes very more sense. The inverse case is I actually think United has enough 777-200ER routes where the extra payload range capacity of the A350 makes sense for, for United, right? Whether it is trans-Pacific routings, particularly from um, the east coast of the U.S. or even from San Francisco into deeper parts of Asia, um, whether it is given their their sort of larger cargo business. Um, United, ironically enough, is an airline where the A350-900 probably did make some sense. Um, and so, like, United should have A350s and Delta should probably have 787s. Um, but neither of them wound up there. And so here we are. Remember that around this time, three years ago, United had made an announcement that it was going to modify the 787-9s for some of their longest routes. So routes like... San Francisco to Singapore, Houston to Sydney, Newark to Johannesburg, um, potentially even some of the flights from the West Coast to Australia. Um, and so what this means is that, you know, the ultra long haul success that United has had with the 787-9 relative to its U.S. peers um, <clears throat> is, you know, invested in, in trying to make those modifications for increased engine thrust and better fuel management system. So do you think that also this will be, 
you know, part of the strategy, along with being able to uh, have a new Polaris product seat that has the sliding doors, among other new gadgets and whistles in the product. Yeah, yeah, I'm sure I'm sure that's part of it. And I'm sure, you know, from a United's perspective, right? If you can get a 787 that's configured, 7879 that's configured with a super premium layout, maybe you can re reduce some of that back of the bus capacity while still flying it on the same routes. Because it can basically fly the same set of routes, um, especially with the range extension that, that you laid out there. So I, I think that's certainly part of it. Uh, my, my question really becomes, um, what does this look like just from a financial perspective? That's the other thing that I'm curious if, you, if you've thought about, just because United has signed up for tens of billions, north of $100 billion worth of aircraft orders. And yeah, it's going to be spread out over a decade plus. But that is a lot of CapEx to take on when the interest rate environment continues to be choppy. And in an environment where um, labor contracts are, you know, we're going back to the future with labor contracts, whether it's the pilot contract that's been very, that's very rich and, or whether it's the, uh, you know, contracts for other labor groups that I'm sure are going to be expensive, does United have the cash to spend on these planes? To me, remains an open question. But as I laid out earlier, given the production rate constraints, maybe the bet is if this goes badly or if we can't afford to take all of these planes, we can always do a sale lease back. We can always sell these production slots to other carriers or to lessors that have that demand. So I wonder if, if that's what's going on here. Yeah, definitely. That is a huge consideration. We all see. We all saw what happened with American Airlines when they made a huge order book back in 2011, and that has substantially increased their debt load uh, for the last decade plus, right? And so United also may be entering into that territory. However, I think that United sees itself as the airline that has presence in some of the most premium markets in the world, like Chicago, New York. LA, San Francisco, Washington. And so perhaps they'll be able to capture the traffic, the, the premium segment of the market that will be able to cover the costs of operating those very expensive aircraft orders. Not to mention, as you mentioned, the cost of labor that is, that is substantially increasing. Uh, but United is making big bets, right? When Scott Kirby came to the airline in 2016, I, I think one could sufficiently say that that was... Uh, for him to make his mark on creating a global airline that could optimize on its uh, existing assets and be able to sort of achieve that global, I don't want to say dominance, but really just being able to, uh, you know, showcase that it operates like a, a China Southern or an Emirates for that matter, a Turkish Airlines and having that, that huge global network. Uh, and so Personally speaking, I think that United has bet big, uh, and some of those uh, bets have paid off for it. Um, not that I'm biased or anything. I personally think that what else are they going to do, right? Um, there's no 777X for them to use. They're definitely not going to go into the A330 family. And the middle-of-the-market aircraft for the 737 family, in between 737, 75, and 78, that doesn't exist there. So where does that leave the airline to focus in on continuing to add to the 787 family that it has, like you mentioned, being able to kind of uh, go for that scale and that sim simplicity. And then also the replacement of some of the older 737s as well as the A32 A320s. Um, using the A321 family, um, it's smart. You know, even though the pay rates are different, they're in the same pilot pool. 
So that can be a very nice advantage for it to be able to also use those aircraft flexibly. They may want to use the 8321s to create a transcontinental product that they can use on some of the transcontinental routes, as well as being able to use some of them on those medium routes, like from Newark to Spain or from Newark to Northern Latin America. So there's all kinds of options that they'll be able to get out of that aircraft order. Yeah, no, I, I, I think the fleet is fun just from a like, how can you create a route network with these planes as your like asset? Um, and I, I think it all makes sense from a strategic perspective when you think about what the fleet strategy is. They've got some degrees of freedom with the ability to sell production slots down the line, um, the ability to accelerate retirements, right? Because they've got a big fleet of current gen, both narrow bodies and wide bodies that they can always draw down if they, if they need to. Um, it's just, it's a lot. And it's been a while since you've seen a U.S. carrier be the airline in the world, arguably, with the biggest order book of new planes, right? United has a bigger order book than Emirates. They've got a bigger order book, especially when you account for the fact that the wide bodies are in there than um, any of the Chinese carriers, than, than Indigo, than Air Asia. Like, like United has, I think, the biggest order book of any airline in the world. Um, and that is just a lot of upfront commitment. It's a, it's a big bet. I applaud them for it. Um, I'm just curious to see how it all plays out down the line. Well, and one thing that we've discussed, and I think it was on a podcast episode where you were unable to join us, and it was when we had Captain Chris Smith with us, uh, was regarding United Aviate Academy, right? And how they are trying to invest in, I, I assume the, the, the good word for it is, is, is working around the pilot shortages or, you know, the inability to, you know, attract pilots to come to the airline. So how do you think that United might be potentially trying to minimize some of the risks associated with this big aircraft order by making other investments in the people side or perhaps even the operational side, the digital side of the airline to be able to uh, ensure that it keeps the smooth operation running and it prepares wisely for this decision years in advance? Get up to speed on the commercial aviation industry with the top stories of the week by subscribing for free to the Airways NOTAM newsletter. You won't have to worry about missing a thing. Every new edition of the Airways NOTAM goes directly to your inbox. Go to airwaysmagazine.substack.com slash subscribe. That's airwaysmagazine.substack.com slash subscribe. Very interesting developments happening at United. What I actually want to turn to now uh, is to move across the, the pond and talk a little bit about what's going on in Europe, because in the never-ending or seemingly never-ending game of musical chairs uh, that are European airline mergers, we had another big shift in the form of Scandinavian airline system, SAS, um, announcing that it would be leaving the Star Alliance after Air France KLM, uh, announced an investment as part of a consortium that will take a non-controlling share in the airline. Um, as part of this, SAS, which is currently in Chapter 11 bankruptcy protection, uh, is going to receive an infusion of 1.1 or nearly $1.2 billion across, you know, about a half billion in new equity, about $700 million in convertible debts. Air France KLM's portion of that is about $150 million to get a 20% stake in SAS, um, with SAS set to leave the Star Alliance, of which I believe they were a founding member, if I'm not mistaken. 
and um, join the Sky Team Alliance and are and you know one would imagine they will join the Sky Team Transatlantic Joint Venture that includes Delta and Virgin Atlantic. So very interesting news from Europe. Um, now we talked last week about Air France KLM. We spent a, a, a sort of a, a, a lot of time diving into uh, their fleet problems, and I think that the funniest outcome of this entire situation is that Air France KLM is dealing with lots and lots of environmental focused regulation and lawmaking and of course the natural addition to that pool of whatever's going on is a group of airlines or an airline with a group of hubs in scandinavia so curious what your reaction was to hearing that sas would be leaving star alliance that they'd be going with air france klm and that what, what, what do you think this means for for sky team frankly well it's funny that KLM or sas rather is one of the founding airlines of Star Alliance in 1997. So it, along with Lufthansa and United and Air Canada and Thai Airways was one of the original ones. Uh, but if we look at the scheduled ASKs for SAS, um, just for the month of July, looking at a graphic that I found online, it's uh, size is approximately 4.4 billion. Um, and that actually puts that at half the size of TUI. Uh, and it puts it as um, just slightly over the size of Air Europa and LOT Airlines and, and Finnair and ITA and even TAP for that matter. So you have the big three in Europe. You have IAG Group, which consists of British Airways, Iberia, Welling, Level, and Aer Lingus. You have the Lufthansa Group, which consists of Lufthansa Mainline, um, Swiss, Austrian, Brussels Airlines, as well as Discover or Eurowings, whatever the latest is. And then you have Air France KLM, which is the third. Um, and relative sizing between the three is, is pretty balanced. It's about um, relatively even with maybe IAG just slightly ahead of Lufthansa and Lufthansa just slightly ahead of Air France KLM. But then you have the um, smaller ones that are consisting of Ryanair, which is primarily short haul, Turkish Airlines, which is Turkish Airlines. Uh, and then the list goes down with EasyJet and uh, Wizz Air, among others. So SAS is kind of somewhere in the middle of all that. And SAS hasn't been the most successful airline in the last couple of decades. Uh, we noticed that during the pandemic, they filed for bankruptcy protection. They have had to chop a lot of their long haul routes out of Copenhagen, not to mention having kind of a split hub structure as is between Oslo, Stockholm and Copenhagen itself. Um, they do fly a couple of trunk long haul routes to the U.S., uh, namely into New York, both airports, uh, Washington, Dulles, Chicago, L.A., Miami and uh, San Francisco. But it's also unclear kind of how strong its alliance relationships are with you know, United for that matter. Once upon a time, it did have a pretty strong relationship with Thai uh, between uh, Scandinavia and Southeast Asia. Uh, that hasn't really, you know, kind of gone much anywhere over the last couple of years, especially because both airlines individually have been basket cases. Uh, so the funny part about this is, is that in some ways it kind of uh, reminds me of Delta, uh, or sorry, LATAM leaving Star Alliance or leaving One World, rather, back in 2019, around this time, and a 20% uh, stake was purchased in LATAM by Delta. 
Now, LabTime did not move to Sky Team right out of the gate. They just simply left the Alliance. Whereas in SAS's case, they're getting that same 20%, so non-controlling stake from Air France KLM, but they're actually moving over to Sky Team. And what exactly are they going to give to Sky Team that Sky Team doesn't already have? Well, maybe some presence in the Nordics, maybe a few extra transatlantic routes. Um, and yes, definitely a little bit of relief, perhaps over the um, uh, over the uh, Amsterdam Schiphol uh, capacity constraints. Above all, I thought it was a surprising announcement, and I also at the same time think that it is, I guess, a pretty bold move too. Because in all honesty, SAS wasn't really getting a whole lot of Star Alliance, and um, you know, Air France KLM is a better backer for their longevity than it is uh, to stand alone. And we know that ITA airlines might be entering into Star Alliance and might not be a Sky Team airline any longer. So sometimes this can also be just the swapping of chairs in, in that musical world of alliances. Yeah, well, I, I think it's interesting that you have this uh, almost game of musical chairs being played, right? Where Lufthansa is buying out ITA, which was, I guess, you know, it's the artist formerly known as Alitalia. So that was always historically a Sky Team sort of uh, airline. Now they're going to be part of Star Alliance, um, part of the Lufthansa group. Air France KLM is buying out SAS, which was not a part of that transatlantic joint venture under Star Alliance, but obviously will become part of the transatlantic joint venture um, uh, with Sky Team. And now you have Top, which um, one might assume IAG will have to make a play for, just given its constraints and the fact that in the game of, of consolidation, if you're not merging, you're, you're being left behind. I think the thing that's really interesting about SAS is, uh, you know, you're right, they were in Chapter 11 bankruptcy, but I just, I don't think that they offer truly that much strategic value, right? One of the things that we've seen over the last 25 years as the ULCCs like Ryanair, like EasyJet, and, in, and like Norwegian in, in SAS's backyard have risen is that if you are a legacy full-service carrier within Europe, you have to have a long-haul network and you have to be a part of a bigger group to gain synergies and marketing brand share, whatever you, whatever you want to call it, right? Um, and so that's what drove Air France KLM. That's what drove Iberia and British Airways to tie up as IAG. That's what drove the Lufthansa group to become the Lufthansa group, right? It is this irresistible market pressure. I think the thing that's interesting is that SAS doesn't really offer that from a long-haul perspective, precisely because, to your point, they're split across three equally-sized hubs. And the reason they're split across three equally-sized hubs is, you know, because, frankly, there is political pressure, right? There's no way, you know, even though consolidating everything at Copenhagen historically, or maybe now at, at Stockholm, given some of the changing dynamics of, of sweet, the Swedish economy, um, you know, pick one, right? Like, would it would have been the move, right? Pick one, make that your dominant hub, build build some intra-Europe capacity from those other places, but really, you should have, SAS should have picked one. And because they never picked one, they were always sort of doomed to fail. I think the more interesting question in some ways is, would those three countries air, and those three airports, Stockholm, Oslo, and um, Copenhagen, have been better off if SAS, the original SAS, had never been formed and if you had instead had three national carriers for each of those countries? I can make a reasonable argument that you're better off um, if the original national carrier for those airlines um, survived.
what was that uh what was that argument i'm curious to know well, well the argument is, is what i just laid out right which is that if each of them had had their own national carrier each of them has enough long-haul demand to be a, a hub but sas is trying to kind of spread the wealth so you can't drive connectivity from within within scandinavia right but if you look back to the original um, consortium. And again, it was, it was founded in 1946, so this is a long, 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 long time ago, right? But um, if you had a standalone national airline at Copenhagen, standalone national airline in Oslo, standard, standalone national airline based in Stockholm, right? Maybe each of them sort of looks like thin air now, right? Um, given the geography of what connectivity looks like, particularly for um, Europe to Asia, Europe to the Middle East, Europe to Southeast Asia. And Arguably, they probably end up in different alliances, right? As opposed to all bundled together. Um, again, this is this is you know uh, an absurd hypothetical because these three airlines have, or these this airline has been together since really since 1946, um, right? And in 1951, which is sort of when they actually formally merged. So we're talking about a long long time ago where this path dependency was created. Um, but I, th I think the interesting question is, how much does this really add to SkyTeam? I would argue not that much. You don't really get that much extra, right? Yeah, you get some connectivity into secondary and tertiary destinations within Scandinavia. But you know, Air France and KLM have pretty robust Scandinavian networks in the first place, right? Um, I, I was just looking this up as we, as we, we chatted. Um, but KLM, for example, has close to 50 flights a day. Um, to Norway, Sweden, Denmark, and Finland. Um, I haven't looked up the Air France numbers, but I'm sure they're very similar, right? Really for KLM in particular, that is bread and butter. So I don't think they get that much. And if I were Air France KLM, I think the more valuable piece is probably top, right? Because not only is top in a different part of Europe, it has a different geography for connectivity. It's a great hub for South America because of its um, historical ties to Brazil. I, I tend to think that top was the price they should have gone after, but um, but but I mean I suppose if you're if you're only outlaying 150 million euros or 100 million US dollars, um, you're getting your I guess hurting Star Alliance for not that much. But the thing is is that they weren't part of the transatlantic joint venture. They didn't seem to have that close a relationship with either the Lufthansa Group or with United. So it's not really clear to me what this does beyond just it, it creates a sexy headline. But I don't know if this actually changes much about the structure of the European market or the transatlantic market for that matter. It's also interesting from a product perspective that SAS sort of functions like a bit of a low cost carrier, especially on long haul markets. They have it segmented where there's SAS Go, I believe, you know, and in that you only get one free meal choice. And if you want drink services in between meals, you have to pay for them. Um, <laughs> that kind of thing, as well as like having to pay for your checked bag, which I don't believe any of Air France KLM's products go to that level. Although one could argue maybe with basic economy on Delta, that could also be a comparison thing. Um, but it, it certainly doesn't get to the level of, you know, Iceland Air or uh, SAS for that matter. So it'll be interesting to see if uh, Product-wise, you know, SAS decides to maintain uh, that kind of segmentation strategy, or if uh, you know, Air France KLM, although not being in a joint venture, they may not require them to to do anything differently. Um, what do you think about the routes between the U.S. and Scandinavia, and how they'll be impacted by this? So, 
from my understanding, let's start with Chicago, for instance. Chicago has two daily flights on SAS, both to Stockholm and to Copenhagen. Um, do you think that both of those flights will still continue to stay even without the feed of a Star Alliance partner like uh, United? No, no, I don't. Um, cer certainly not at, this, at the current level of capacity. Um, if I kind of just pull up what SAS's transatlantic um, schedules look like, um, and I'm about to lose access to these schedules, so uh, our listeners will no longer get access to the schedule game that I play every once in a while. Um, so they've got service from uh, Newark to Alberg in Denmark. That's with the A321LR. Um, to Copen uh, So, yeah, so, okay, so, so you've got service from Alberg to Newark. From Copenhagen to Boston, Chicago, Los Angeles, New York, Newark, San Francisco, and Washington, Dallas. That is really their, their biggest transatlantic hub. Um, Oslo to Newark. Stockholm to Chicago, Newark, and Toronto. Um, and then let me actually just expand this to be the weekly look because they operate some of these flights less than daily. Um, yeah, so Copenhagen, so Alberg to Newark, Copenhagen to Boston, Chicago, Los Angeles, New York, uh, JFK, Liber Newark, San Francisco, Toronto, Dulles. Gothenburg to Newark, again on the 321LR, which is a, a new technique they've pulled out. Oslo to Newark, Stockholm to Chicago, Newark, Toronto. So I think the Toronto stuff stays because it is what it is. But if you look at their um, their Copenhagen network in particular, right? Chicago, LA, um, Newark, San Francisco, and Washington, Dulles, those are all United hubs. You would imagine that they're going to pivot to to. Delta hubs. Now, the easy one is anything that's flying to Newark, you probably just flop, flip that over to JFK. That's that's an easy move. I don't know that O'Hare survives at the same level of capacity. Right now, it's basically two daily A330s. You probably pull that back to maybe like a single daily flight. Um, maybe San Francisco goes less than daily. Dulles still has a lot of demand, so maybe you run that, but you switch that to like a 321. Um, the thing that's tricky is that they already, they already fly to Boston, which is the other Delta hub that makes a ton of sense. Um, there's probably additional flights to Atlanta, whether that's on SAS or on Delta Metal. Um, but the interesting thing is I don't, I don't know that you can necessarily fly to Detroit, per se, but Minneapolis in particular does have a pretty large um, Scandinavian-American population. I, think, I believe it's specifically Norwegian-Americans. Yeah. Um, so that's, that's a route that could, could, could come back. Seattle. I tend to think that the big thing that you see, Seattle is another good one. I, I, I used to, to fly to Seattle, actually. It was one of their um, hallmark routes that they cut in like 2008 or 2009 after 40 years of flying there. Sure, yeah. So yeah, I, I tend to think that you will see a swap from Newark, from Newark to um, JFK for a lot of those routes. I tend to think that you will see a sort of paring down of capacity to Chicago O'Hare, but there is still a lot of origin and destination demand that drives those. Um, and then I think outside of that, you'll see not too, too much change just because L.A., big market in its own right. SFO, maybe that one's a little bit more marginal. Um, but it's, again, big origin and destination market in its own right. P part of what has happened is Scandinavia has become much more of a tourist destination for Americans in the last 10 years. So a lot of these markets, yeah, they're United Hubs, and that helps when it comes to connectivity. But those two airlines don't work that closely together in the first place. So I, I don't actually think you'll see too, too many changes to... Um, the uh to the sas setup right um when it comes to transatlantic flying well and air canada flies a lot of capacity from both toronto and montreal seasonally to copenhagen so i wonder how that will change uh, and not to mention that you know from copenhagen itself 
the long haul routes that don't touch the North America region include Bangkok, which is seasonal and very surprisingly seasonal. Um, and then Tokyo, I believe. Uh, so, you know, with a lot of Asia still being shut down routes like Beijing and Shanghai and Hong Kong uh, and uh, Singapore, you know, have been uh, axed from the SAS long haul global network. Um, hence why there's been so much focus on the United States uh, and a little bit of Canada over those past couple years. Yeah, SAS has service to Bangkok, to Shanghai, and to Tokyo, um, Haneda, all from all from Copenhagen, and all less than daily, as far as I can tell. I think it's three weekly flights to each of those. Um, so yeah, it, it's it's really not not a ton. Um, it, it's it's mostly transatlantic. That is SAS's bread and butter. And just the move to be in the joint venture as opposed to outside of the joint venture is probably going to pay some dividends. Um, we'll, we'll see how, how much of a dividend it pays over the next few years. And didn't Finair do some capacity additions on a long haul basis out of SAS's hubs? Um, I know that, you know, last November they've started Copenhagen to Doha, Helsinki to Doha and uh, Stockholm to Doha. So in all honesty, it's it's it's. Um, you know, interesting too that they had, uh, you know, Helsinki to, they had um, Stockholm, Bangkok, Stockholm to LA, Stockholm to Miami, Stockholm to JFK, and Stockholm to Phuket flights that were operated on air uh, or on um, thin air. So that's, that's no longer the case, but also funny that that was encroached on their territory in recent years. Yeah, no, I, I think it, it definitely is is funny. I, my sense is that Finnair is starting to see some of their Asia demand return a little bit, right? If you look at their December schedules, they're back to Bangkok with a bunch of flights. Um, they're going to Delhi, they're going to Doha, they're in Dubai, um, Hong Kong, Osaka, Phuket, Seoul, Shanghai, Singapore, and then a bunch of flying to Tokyo. So, so Finnair appears to be seeing more demand return um, within Asia. That's a broader theme in, in terms of the capacity recovery um, to Asia. Speaking of Asia, the last story that we wanted to chat a little bit about today was China Eastern's announcement of a 10-year expansion plan. Um, the 10-year expansion plan is focused on its main hub at Shanghai Pudong Airport, um, and it includes across the next five years, new service to Buenos Aires in South America, Manchester, Athens, Marseille, Milan, and Vienna in Europe, Johannesburg and Cairo in Africa, Abu Dhabi, Riyadh, Tehran, and Tel Aviv in the Middle East. That's for the next five years. And then across the next, uh, across the five years after that, so across the 10 years period, um, you're also looking at Atlanta, Boston, and Seattle, Berlin, Munich, Barcelona in Europe, Nairobi in Africa, and then Christchurch and Perth in uh Australia or the Australasian um, continent. The November issue of Airways Magazine is now available, packed with intriguing stories that will take you on a journey through aviation history. Simone Calini and Adrian Nawakowski delve into our cover story, Finnair's Rich Pass, and tell us what's next for this century-old airline. Babak Tahave recounts the history of the Boeing 737 at El Al, as the airline prepares to take delivery of its first A321neos and to lose its proudly all Boeing status. Marty Basaria interviews Rohini Sengupta, Director of Sustainability and Decarbonization at one of the world's largest airlines, United. Also in this issue, 
Joe Wolf argues that McDonnell Douglas and Lockheed missed a fateful opportunity in the 1960s when they respectively developed the DC-10 and the L-1011 at the same time. And finally, our very own David H. Stringer flies back to the origins of United States Overseas Airlines, possibly the largest U.S. scheduled airline you've never heard of. Go to airwaysmag.com shop to get the latest issue. And now we continue with our plus extension where Rohan and Vinay discuss the developments in Chinese aviation. So I, <laughs> my initial reaction when, when I saw this was, um, that's cute. I don't know that you'll be allowed to fly. And I think we've seen this pattern before from airlines. I think Qatar Airways and Turkish Airlines are probably the biggest examples of this, right? Where they'll just announce tons and tons of new destinations. 